Hello. 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 Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> so uh, there's a bunch of times that I've uh, I've actually unplugged uh, or turned off my wireless at home and everything's been fine. Apparently, I can't do that at work, especially when the, the Ethernet cable is not plugged in or anything. <laughs> But then, um, but then I plugged it in and it still didn't work. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's okay. We'll uh, we'll fix that in post, as they say. As they say. As as we say. As so, we like to say. So you know, as much as I as much as I love this shucking and jiving uh, part of the show, uh, I have a hard out at eleven. So, uh, oh, well, we should we should keep, do a show. <laughs> yeah, let's keep, let's keep, let's keep this moving. Um, so, are you recording? Because I am recording. I am recording. Perfect. Let's do it. Do it. Um, so let's go. Let's let's start with some follow up. Um, I know you and I uh, emailed a little bit last week, and we were not able to record a podcast last week. I don't know if it was on our plans or not, but you were you were away. You were in Turkey, and then and then somewhere else. You've been all over the place. You were in Denver. I, that's true. I was so I was in I was in Istanbul, Turkey. Istanbul, Const- not 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 Constantinople, <laughs> as the uh, as the song goes. Um, and, and then uh, after that, I was in Marseille, France, where I got to see a friend of the show and and, and good friend of ours as well, Mike Batts. He was there. It was great to see him. And uh, also got to see uh, my uh, former Ph.D. student, Marisa Kaipo, who works for FAO. And uh, I, uh, I uh, flogged the show uh, mercilessly. So everybody that would listen, I talked to about the show. So we might have a few, a few new listeners. So that's, uh, so that's good. Cool. And then uh, flew from uh, Marseille via Frankfurt. Uh, to Denver, Colorado, for the American Society for Microbiology meeting, um, where I don't think I had a chance to to, to merciless, mercilessly promote the show, but uh, you never know. That seems unlikely. It seems like that would have been a place you could have mercilessly, merc, mercifully, listly, I don't know what the word is. You could have flogged us. Yes. Show. Well, except ex- except that the only the only place that I really was was at uh, an editor editor's dinner for AEM and an editorial board meeting, and the poster of my student Jen, um, who uh, who already knows about the show, I think. Wow. <laughs> so that's that's the only thing I actually did while I was there, and I I hung out with my son who also already knows about the show so and you uh, um you know keeping this to food today you also uh, posted on facebook a, a bunch of uh, restaurants that you ate at yes oh there are so many good restaurants in denver i uh, i'm uh, but my son was telling me he was running out of good restaurants so it was good that i was leaving town <laughs> <laughs> well that's good um i'm glad you've exhausted all of them uh, that are there all the the really good ones um, well, speaking of, well, uh, here, here's the, the question that I have. Jen, uh, or Jennifer, the graduate student that, that knows of the podcast. Oh, you- oh, yeah. So we have, I have two graduate students named Jennifer and okay. for clarity's sake, we refer to them as Jen and Jen and Jenny. Okay, good. Excellent. Well, um, I hope that both Jen and Jenny list, like download and actually listen to the podcast, <laughs> but but this is a segue into some other follow-up. Yes. We, we do have a friend who, as, as, as I don't know if we've mentioned this on the show, but, um, uh, but our friend Linda um, downloads the podcasts because she knows how to do that. But she doesn't listen to the podcast. And she texted us yesterday um, as uh, uh, Michelle, are, we, you know, the, the four of us, Michelle, Don, Linda, and I kind of have this ongoing text conversation. Michelle was in Canada. I was at the gym. Don was at a restaurant in New Jersey. And Linda was, I'm not sure where she was, but she wasn't listening to the podcast because she texted us that she had to look up what Arrested Development was. 
um, because everyone is talking about Arrested Development, and she didn't know what it was. And I, uh, I, I mean, you were very subtle. You were very subtle in your your response to Linda. Of, are you still? not listening to the podcast because we did talk about it in episode 40. Um, so Arrested Development, Linda, although you're not listening, we've talked about, and you could ask us about what Arrested, or ask me at least about what Arrested Development is because I am a fan and I'm looking forward to this Sunday when uh, a, a new season is released on Netflix. <laughs> so so there. <laughs> um, so... Do you have any other follow-up before we jump into, like, maybe the shortest follow-up intro ever in a, in a podcast? Do you have anything else you want No, to but I see that, uh, once again, we failed to note in in the logical place in our, our notes for the show, not to be confused with show notes, um, uh, we failed to note uh, bug trivia. So we probably ought to do bug trivia. Would you do the musical intro? Yeah. <laughs> bug trivia. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> um, so do you have one that you want to do? Well, um, I, uh, no. I don't. Okay. I, well, I, will, I, I would like to do Clostridium perfringens. So uh, – and we didn't, we didn't do this yet, right? Didn't. We didn't. Oh, we did okay. Clostridium botulinum. botulinum. Okay. So I would like to do Clostridium perfringens. So I'm actually – and this is actually relevant to what we could, we could consider some follow-up. So I have been working – uh, well, okay. So, so if you may remember, some time ago I visited the university. Uh, no, not the university of. I visited Oregon State University in Portland, Oregon, and um, I may have mentioned that I think on on a show. And I, I, my host for that for that trip was a guy named Mafuz Sarkour. And uh, Mafuz is a wonderfully charming gentleman, originally from uh, Bangladesh. He is a Clostridium perfringens researcher. He's he's done a lot of work with sporulation as well as germination and understanding the genetics and the molecular biology of those processes. So, and we we've, we've done some work with Clostridium perfringens in my lab in the past, looking at um, models for for the organism. It's a big problem for meat processors who uh, have to cool large cuts of meat, roast, roasts and hams and things like that. The USDA Food Safety Inspection Service has a what they call their Appendix B performance standard for, for cooling, and a lot of processors get into trouble with that uh, because they're not able to uh, cool things quickly enough, so they call me and I use some, some computer models or occasionally we do some laboratory research. So I've been thinking about Clostridium perfringens because I saw Mafuz in Portland, but then I also saw him uh, at a ASM. Uh, we sat together at the editorial board breakfast, and it was always good to see him. He's, again, just such a, a kind and, and nice and, and generous uh, human being. It was wonderful to see him again. Uh, but also, I had a teleconference recently with Tim Moore, who works for USDA FSIS. And Tim's thing that he has been working on for many, many years, he's absolutely meticulous about going out and finding all of the papers on Clostridium perfringens. And, and I don't know, you know, and actually, you know, this is entirely appropriate that we're talking about this because, because once Carl Custer retired, it was actually Tim Moore who stepped in to fill Carl's rather considerable shoes at USDA FSIS. So the, many of the, the issues that Carl handled before he retired, Tim is handling now. And like I 
I said, Tim is a big um, uh, has a, a huge amount of interest in Clostridium perfringens and, and things like that. So that's that's kind of my way of introducing this organism. So uh, uh, again, now we'll move to to bug trivia from from Carl Custer. Uh, Clostridium perfringens, formerly known as Clostridium welchii, um, was uh, infamous for causing the disease gas gangrene, and it was uh, uh, and and Carl writes in his uh, his bug trivia notes here: food poisoning due to Clostridium perfringens was first reported by McClung in 1945. Um, uh, and then he goes on to note: Betty Hobbs performed the most significant work to better understand and cope with this pathogen. And again, the name Hobbs comes up quite a bit in the Clostridium perfringens literature. The thing that that absolutely blows me away about Clostridium perfringens is just how incredibly, incredibly fast it grows close to its optimum temperature of around 110 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, And again, the way that this organism typically grows and the way that it typically causes illness is it causes illness during the cooling of a cooked meat product. So the cooking process germinates the spores, and then those spores are at a really nice high temperature, close to the optimum temperature for the organism. And if if you linger in that that high temperature zone for for too long, again, uh, somewhere between 110 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit or so, this organism is just going to grow like absolutely like gangbusters. Um, some, one of some of the, the fastest growth curves I've, I've ever seen. Um, it's just, uh, it's just absolutely um, mind-boggling. Now, the good news is for from food from a food safety perspective is that this organism does not typically cause. Uh, fatalities in humans. Um, it, it, it will cause illness. You'll feel you'll feel lousy, but generally is is not a big problem. Um, if you get enough of the organism, though, if you get millions and, and billions of, of cells, um, it can uh, indeed cause a, a necrotizing enteritis. That is, it can actually cause death of the uh, intestines, and that's certainly not good for your health. In some countries uh, that, that do eat a lot of meat that is held at room temperature after cooking for a long period of time, they have a disease uh, known as pig bell. Um, and pig bell uh, is indeed uh, can be can be fatal, much more fatal than typical Clostridium perfringens food poisoning that we see uh, that we see in this country. So, so that's uh, that's this week's bug trivia. Bug trivia. Well um, done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's really the challenge for me every every time we record this now. Uh, per- perfringens is, is is a really. I mean. Uh, one that that I use a lot um, in our food safety info sheets or in any of the training that I that I do with food service because um, you know as you kind of just succinctly um, said there it's the the issue the perception is you, you know talk about um, uh, improper temperatures that, that cook temperatures are, are so much more important and this is one you know it's, it's always fun to sort of talk about the exception to the rule uh, situation where you can cook a, a product really nicely um, which may just um, uh, you know it won't do anything to the to those spores and then it's that at post cook handling which which is a, a tough concept um, to um, I, I think sort of get across to, to food handlers that, well, I've cooked, you know, this idea of, well, I've cooked it. So it, and, you know, there shouldn't be any problem unless I had some sort of post cooking contamination. So I cooked it and then kept everything clean. So everything is fine. Um, th- this one really demonstrates that, um, that issue really, um, really nicely. We, there was a, a pretty, I mean, the, the one that I think I use 
in most examples was an outbreak that happened, um, I think it was uh, 2010 in Chicago, and it was a, 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 a at a school. Um, and it was a parent-teacher interview night, and uh, someone from the school had ordered a bunch of uh, chicken barbecue from a restaurant, and uh, they showed up with uh, just you know that chicken barbecue and chafing pans, and it was left out. Um, you know, when it showed up, I'm sure it was very hot, and then it was left out for multiple hours uh, as as people ate it, and and you know, it showed up at three o'clock in the afternoon, and the last person uh, ate it around uh, nine o'clock at night, or some something like that. Um, and uh, it, to me, it, 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 there, there's like a lot of stuff uh, in that outbreak that that's really kind of cool. One is. Um, not cool but from a you know people that got sick standpoint, but cool from a teaching standpoint. One is yeah, the, you know, these spores can survive the cooking, and if you, this is why temperature control is important. But the more interesting to interesting me interesting to me is this idea that um, as a caterer, I'm going to make some food and I'm going to drop it off somewhere, and I really don't know what someone's going to do to it or not, and ultimately. Um, if someone temperature abuses it and I didn't tell them that they needed to keep it hot or I didn't sort of inquire on it, it I may not have broken any laws, but, um, you know, sort of good food safety culture type things. I want to know that everyone knows how to handle the product that I'm, I'm selling them. And um, I just, I mean, Perfringens is, it, 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 I mean, that, that example for me is, is one that really sort of crystallized and we'll link to that in, in show notes, the info sheet we made around, around this, but it's, um, you know, that rapid growth really, really mattered uh, in, in that situation. So thanks thanks again to, to Carl for sending us out this really good uh, bug trivia uh, text file that we can use and kick off our podcast every, every couple of weeks. Indeed, indeed. Cool, cool, cool. So I would, I would like to talk about uh, cake mix warning, not a joke. Ah. Okay. Fantastic. So, so I'll 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 set this up. This is something that you put into snow notes. Sh- blah blah. Sh- show notes. Uh, Snopes. Snopes. Notes. Snopes. God, it's uh, it's Friday morning, and uh, I have not had a complete cup of coffee, and apparently my mouth is not working. Um, so, this starts off like one of those crazy things that we're always getting from people. Like my mom, actually, she she doesn't send them anymore. But but um, but saying, oh my God, you know, something bad has happened. Uh, don't um, you know? I don't know what's what's an example of a really stupid one. Oh, someone was driving an RV and put it on autopilot, and then walked in the back to make a cup of coffee, and they crashed. And you know, so I mean, just like people do do stupid stuff. But but some of the stuff that's out there, basically, Ben, did you know that some of the stuff that's out there on the internet is in fact not true no i don't believe you yeah that's what you just said and this will be on the internet is not true that's better (laughs) so so this uh so the the heading the heading of this uh, email message is something like cake mixes and toxins urgent message all in caps now please read okay so immediately you know right away that it's that it's nonsense so uh, but in fact in, in this case it turns out to not be nonsense so um, I'll read a little bit from the story and then a little bit from the from the, the background a student at uh, some particular high school had pancakes this week and it and it almost became fatal his mom made him pancakes dropped him off at the school and headed to play tennis um, uh, so she never takes her phone with her but this time she did I don't know why that 
level of detail is important in these stories, but it usually there usually is some incredibly specific level of detail. Uh, uh, to say that her son was having trouble breathing, she told him to go to the nurse, um, called the school, uh, alerted the nurse. The nurse called the paramedics. They were there in three minutes. Um, he, it says here he came so close to dying. Uh, evidently, this is more common than I ever knew. Check the expiration date on packages like pancakes and cake mixes that have yeast, which over time develop spores. Okay, well, first of all, that's not right, right? Yeast don't form spores. Apparently, the mold, okay, so now we're talking about mold, that it forms in old mixes can be toxic. Throw away, again, all caps here, all outdated uh, end caps, pan- pancake mix, bisquick, brownie mixes, etc. that you have in your home. You might want to tell this to your children, grandchildren, nephews, nieces, and anyone else on the internet because they all want to know this. I've, I've editorializing a little bit. Um, so turns out um, the uh, the authors of this uh, uh, article, this pu- this article that's indexed in PubMed, uh, report on the death of it. So now we're moving from uh, weird internet meme to actual truth. Uh, uh, authors report on the death of a 19-year-old white male who had a history of multiple allergies, uh, including pets, mold, and penicillin. He and his friends made pancakes that, and a pancake mix that had been opened in the cabinet for approximately two years. The friends stopped eating the pancakes because they said they tasted like, quote, rubbing alcohol. The uh, decedent, that, that is the young man who died, continued to eat the pancakes, suddenly became short of breath, taken to a nearby clinic where he became unresponsive and died. So... Um, I guess there's some truth in here, but there's also a lot of, like, wacky stuff, like yeast forms spores. I mean, certainly, as an extension professional, and I know you do the same thing, I'm sure, I advise people not to use foods that are past their best-by date or past their sell-by date because those foods, in fact, are of lower quality. Almost never are those foods unsafe, with the perhaps exception of, uh, luncheon meats that are past their date uh, because of uh, because they they may they may po- there might be a listeria risk there. So so what's what do you think of this whole thing? What's going on here, Ben? Well, I like that um, there. You know, as you point out, so often we get these things that that pop up. There was one um, similar to this, another meme that that was out there around. Um, cutting up onions and leaving them on your counter and how that can soak up all the influenza that might be floating around in your life. And also that onions, because of that, are the most dangerous foods um, and you have to keep them in your refrigerator. So anyway, like I, this one's kind of interesting because it's one of those memes where there's a little bit of truth behind it. And so this, the first time I ever came, uh, came across this was actually about four years ago, three and a half, four years ago, where I got you know it's an extension agent emailed me this and was like, what do you think about this? Is this true? And I was like, I, you know, I don't know. So I went to the internet and tried to find out what, you know, what it, uh, what it was all about. Snopes had looked at, at this specific myth and they had, um, linked to, uh, a couple of, uh, primary research articles or not primary, uh, source articles that, um, uh, that sort of went through why this meme might've popped up. And the one that you just, um, uh, sort of talked about was, the the one that everyone kind of pointed to, but there here here are the things in here that um, that matter. I guess if you look at what the what what the what was in the literature versus what the meme says. So one is nineteen year old male had a lot of allergies, including penicillin. So high, already a high risk individual. This isn't something like for for um, for mold and spore 
uh, uh, anaphylaxis problems. Like not not like I, I'm not a I'm not allergic myself to to penicillin or or anything like that. So I'm in a different category. So to, the the sort of alertness of the meme of everyone tell everyone you know, and really the message is. Maybe you should tell people that you know have allergens and a lot of allergen, uh, uh, an allergen specifically to, to penicillin and other mold um, issues. Secondly, here this this idea of throwing away all outdated pancake mix. If you look into that that article um, in uh, American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology or Medical Pathology, I guess it is, um, they talk about how this um, the 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 um, pancake mix itself was um, opened in a cabinet in a high humidity area for two years. So that's different than a packaged, you know, fully packaged, uh, outdated pancake mix. Like you know, there 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 are differences in 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 a um, in the contamination level and also how that that was handled. So to me, there those two things sort of pop out. So yeah, if you are at high risk for um, uh, mold type allergies, you have mold type allergies, you're at higher risk for this, then probably don't keep pancake mix around for two years in a high humidity environment in your, in your pantry once you've opened it where you may have some problems. But does this mean everyone needs to throw away all outdated pancake mix right now? No way. Not, not to me. I mean, there's the, this is, uh, it's a little too, too far, but that's a much better story and a much better email. Yeah, yeah. The the email that um, you know you might have some out of date foods in your kitchen, and you probably should throw them around, throw them away when you get around to it. That's really you know that doesn't inspire all caps uh, headlines. Oh, it's not nearly as fun, I guess. Um, well, hey, moving moving on. I, I received another uh, uh, question. You know, this the one that you mentioned was from a, an extension agent. And I got another question earlier this week um, from because uh, it's canning season. And, and as you know, I'm the 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 self-proclaimed canning king of uh, Wake County, North Carolina, uh, and and do get to receive lots of good uh, home food preservation questions, as do you and, and our good friend Elizabeth Andrus at um, University of Georgia, runs the National Center for Home Food Preservation, has become my absolute guru, uh, and also supplemented with uh, great information and guidance from you and, and Linda Harris. Uh, but I, I got a kind of a scary uh, email on, on Monday um, from uh, an, it was actually from an extension um, uh, administrative assistant in a county because her family consumer science agent was out. And, and the email reads, we had a lady come into the county extension center uh, this morning uh, asking for help with canning mush- mushrooms. She puts her mushrooms in half pint glass jars and fills the jar to, top, to the top with water. Then she uses her pressure cooker for 15 to 20 minutes the same way that she cans her tomatoes. However, Tomatoes turn out okay, but the mushrooms are brown, rubbery, and almost all water. Can you help? My response about 30 seconds later was, you know, alarming in my voice. Are you kidding? What this individual is doing is creating a final product that is very high risk for botulism and intoxication. They're likely rubbery because the way they're way under processed. Um, and in fact, if we look at the tested uh, recipe that, that Elizabeth provides, it um, and it's in uh, USDA uh, sort of historical as well, is that those um, 
uh, mushrooms need to be uh, processed for uh, 45 minutes. I mean, three times as long as what she's doing it for. And the tomatoes and mushrooms are very different. And a pressure cooker also isn't the right tool. To, the pressure canner is where you can monitor pressure, where you can set how much pressure there is as opposed to a cooker, which is not really uh, built to, to can, especially low-acid uh, foods. Um, so I, I sent on the um, safe recipe or tested recipe uh, from, from Elizabeth's group, uh, and I suggested that she dispose of all the mushrooms in jars very carefully as the toxin, uh, you know, I, in my mind, my, my, I thought the toxin formation is very likely, and she definitely had some dangerous stuff on her hands. So this one was like, sometimes you get these, these questions of, you know, am I, is this safe? And, and, and it's a more gray area of whether people are pushing the recipes and yeah, we don't know. This one to me sounded really, really unsafe. Um, so I was, uh, was pretty, uh, I was pretty alarmed with it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and if you think about it, mushrooms are in, in my, my way of looking at it, one of the most light, I mean, so for them to be unsafe, you have to have two things. Well, you have to have a bunch of things. You have to number one, have Clostridium botulinum spores present. Number two, you have to have conditions where Clostridium botulinum spores can grow, germinate, grow, and produce toxin. And then number three, you have to have enough time for that to have happen. So, so clearly we we had two and three, and if you think about where do mushrooms come from, what kind of environment are they grown in, they're grown in a dirty environment, and spores are found in the dirt, right? So, boy, yeah. I mean, talk about talk about a load and a gun. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, that's, that's some scary, yeah, that's some scary stuff. Well, and, and, you know, when, what I didn't, I haven't followed up with the individual here. I kind of, you know, as, as we do, I kind of put my information out there towards the counties and the folks on the front line kind of work directly with, with a lot of individuals for the most part, especially on the consumer side of things. What, what kind of concerned me about the, the email was this idea that they're brown, rubbery, and almost all water. The rubbery part indicates to me that she might have tasted these, like, or, or at least there's some sort of sensory going on. Uh, it may be that she cooked them and, and cut them and they just didn't look right. And I hope that's the case. But um, it, it seems to me that this is, uh, yeah, this, this was a, a, a recipe for disaster and, and not that, that anything can be, um, you know, risk-free. But this was definitely a lot of, a lot of risk piling up uh, together in a, in a kind of a, uh, a scary kind of manner. So I don't like getting emails like this where I was like, someone is not asking about the safety. She's asking about the quality of this product. And I was like, Oh man, um, safety is, is something I'm worried about for you right now. Well, and you know, the other thing too, is, I mean, I know you're like Johnny on the spot when it comes to emails, cause you, you always keep your email inbox at zero and you always respond right away. Um, I don't always do that. And so, I mean, I really worry about these really critical <clears throat> pieces of information that come in where someone is wanting an answer and you know if you had some way to have that email escalate like some sort of uh artificial intelligence system that had that would have that email like all the way escalate up to the point where your phone turns on fire you know and says deal with this right now i mean that's one of those right i mean serious business oh in, in you know not not too much of a joking manner but i really think that i would escalate this one up to 11 on <laughs> one to 10 scale. And a side note, for whatever reason, I've used that, that spinal tap reference enough times in my house that both my boys, when they want something loud, they, they ask me to turn it up to 11. <laughs> so, um, so I would have turned this one up to 11 and, and Jack and Sam know exactly what that means. Oh, that's, that's, that's awesome. It's so cool when we can share popular culture uh, with our, with our kids and, and they get it. 
Hey, so I want to I want to segue to my own um, question on canning that that came my way, and I of course shared this with uh, with you and with Elizabeth, and then uh, also at. Um, Someone's suggestion, uh, maybe Elizabeth's suggestion, also with uh, with Barb Ingham, who at uh, University of Wisconsin Madison. So, the, the situation is, I had a an entrepreneur uh, contact me, and she said, um, and uh, so we have a situation in uh, in New Jersey where um, if you are processing food um, and you want to have it for sale. You have to have a HACCP plan, or if you're if you're processing, if you're a restaurant, but you're really becoming a food processor, you have to have a HACCP plan. And and I've helped I've helped people like this before. Most recently, a couple of years ago, I helped a woman <clears throat> who was starting a, a homemade jams and jellies business. They want to sell it at a local farmer farmers market, and they're being told by the um, uh, local regulatory officials that they they need to have a HACCP plan. And of course, if you're making conventionally made Jams and jellies—they're—they're they're almost foolproof. They're really essentially no uh, no risk uh, or very very low risk. And so what I did was essentially I wrote a letter saying that this is a very low risk product. Well, I got another letter that looked like it was the same kind of thing. And the person says, "Hi, my name is so and so. I'm starting a business selling homemade jams and jellies. I I want to participate in a local local farmers market, but I understand from the uh, county board of health that I need." Uh, to work with someone on creating a HACCP plan because of the canning process. And I said, oh, no problem. Here's the example of the letter I wrote for this other person. I think jams and jellies are exempt. Um, I've got good buy-in from that, uh, from the public health people before. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, so, you know, it's like, hey, no problem. This will, this will be easy to take care of. And then she sent me a message back that said, thank you so much for your quick reply. I will send you my recipes. Most of my recipes I printed from online and sometimes slightly altered to use low-sugar pectin made by SureGel. And, you know, and again, in... in um, <clears throat> In, in, in fairness to our listeners, I think every single recipe that she sent me was from off the Internet, and every single one, she changed it to lower the amount of sugar. And often in a way, and again, nothing against this poor person. She's an entrepreneur. She's just trying to create a business. I, I you know, a lot of respect for that. Um, she obliterated what the original number was and wrote in her new number for her modified recipe. So immediately I'm thinking, okay, well, we know – Jams and jellies are low risk because they're high pH. We know that they are low risk because they are very high water activity. And now here's somebody messing with the water activity. And and these are not approved recipes. These are not um, National Center for Home Food Preservation recipes. They aren't USDA recipes. They're not um, the ball company recipes. These are these are just you know winging it, adjusting to taste, etc. And so, um, again, right right away, I got uh, on the phone to, uh, or not on the phone, on the, on the email to Elizabeth Andress. Oh, also Kathy Glass um, at University of Wisconsin Madison, who's who's my sort of my go to botulism expert. Um, and of course, I also remember a conversation that that we had some time ago about this uh, Canadian watermelon jelly outbreak, which I I looked into a little bit. But there really wasn't a lot of information out there. Like apparently, no. apparently there is an actual case that is actually associated with watermelon jelly, but nobody actually 
near as I can tell, went back and figured out what the pH or what the water activity of that, that jelly was. Or, and you really have to look carefully to find out that there's even actual an actual case that's associated with it, admittedly maybe only epidemiologically uh, you know, uh, implicated. That's, and, and Don, that's the Canadian way. But I do, but actually, <laughs> so what, what, you're, what you're saying is, if I get this correctly, that that, while there was a little bit of information on the internet from the health authorities about that case, not enough for us to really learn anything from. And let me tell you, uh, being that I, you know, have, uh, all, you know, all my cousins live in Canada, um, uh, I, I do know the answer to your question, and it's not been publicly shared. Actually, as I was, you were talking about the watermelon jam, I just went back to my to my email, and I have a uh, a friend who's at University of British Columbia that was sort of called in uh, on this. And for those of you who are savvy on the internet, you'll figure out who that is. Who I think um, I know. <laughs> who who emailed me not long after that case that said um, pH five point five, uh, water activity point nine five. So. So someone had that information, um, and, and it was al- also in a nice uh, area that would be, yep, pretty pretty good uh, growth of uh, pretty good uh, to the growth of uh, uh, clostridium botulinum, and, and yet was set right, like it was it was it, actually uh, it was, like it, it appeared to be a jam or a jelly. Yes, and it was described anecdotally also by this individual as loose. It was set, but it was. A little bit soupy on top. So, yeah. So, but I mean, kind of incredible, right? Uh, and, and yes, uh, the the information that that was out there that um, the the link that that you included included in our um, uh, notes for the show, and we'll go into show notes. Um, it doesn't give a whole lot of good information about uh, the individual that got sick, but there was there was one uh, illness that that actually alerted the the authorities to investigate this uh, because it was being sold as a um, uh, as a fundraiser in a charity booth in sort of an area that was not frequented by um, uh, health inspectors because it was you know kind of like a festival kind of situation. Right, right. So, so you know, I mean, where am I left? Well, I'm, I guess I'm, yeah. I'm number one. I'm left still waiting for Elizabeth to weigh in, but where I've kind of netted out, um, in my head is I can't, I can't in all good, good faith, tell this woman to go forward without doing a whole lot of water activity and pH measurements. And the problem with that is I know this is somebody who's an entrepreneur. She doesn't have, I mean, she, the rest, I mean, she sent me a a list of what, what must have been two dozen, two to three dozen things that she wants to make. So am I really going to tell her that she needs to spend $50 a recipe to test the water activity? And in fact, that's only going to give her the water activity of that recipe when she made it on that day. Am I really going to tell her that what she really needs to do is she needs to measure the pH and the water activity of every batch? Well, yeah, that's probably what I'm going to tell her because that's what she needs to do to make it safe. But I, but I also know that number one, that's going to either put her out of business or she's just going to go ahead and do it anyway under the radar and not follow my advice. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's I'm, and that's why I guess I'm procrastinating responding to her email. I don't know what to do. Um, one thing I could do, I guess, is we could offer 
in my lab, we're heading into the summertime months and I do have a bunch of uh, undergrads um, and even high school students that are coming into my lab for the summer. And I suppose I could put them to work doing pH and I'm not going to, I can't, can't have a a graduate student doing that, but, but an undergrad or a high school student uh, just sort of give them something simple to do, get, tell them, show them how to do a pH measurement on something like that. uh, Show them how to do a water activity measurement and have them do that all day. I mean, that might be mind numbing, but we might learn something pretty interesting out of that. You know? Yeah, yeah. Which and 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 I bet you that you know the individual sent you that message. It's not like she's the only one who's trying to take a recipe and make a little sugar jam, right? Right, like, right, right, like, right. Like like there's there's probably you know magnify it by a thousand of people that are um, trying to sell stuff at uh, at farmers markets and and not really taking into account what changing that that recipe does. Um, and, and how that affects that, uh, that water activity. And, and so, yeah, I mean, we, you may be able to find something, uh, interesting that, that's transferable that, that others, you know, like, like me and Elizabeth and, and everyone else that sort of encounters folks that really good entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, can, can, uh, help, can work with. Um, so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if nothing else, there'll be one paper out there that might help somebody like me that comes along next year with the same kind of question, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so being that I was so interested in the um, Canadian uh, watermelon jelly botulism, no information thing, I think this is probably a good time to talk uh, again about my countrymen and my, my country my country folk uh, with uh, something that you'd put into our notes here uh, about what I'm calling the great hazelnut salmonella caper. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I got real grumpy with, with, with a, a CFIA – um, press release, a health hazard alert, uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency health hazard alert uh, last week, and it's and it, that grumpiness has, has continued on into to this morning. So, um, and I, I'm realizing more and more that um, that I really kind of like being grumpy sometimes. And right now, I'm, I'm in that one of those moods. It makes me more productive. It gets me all fired up. So, so here's the situation: um, hazelnuts. I, 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 I I'm. I'm I'm already a little bit interested in, in low moisture foods, and a lot of that's because of some of the stuff that you and Linda and Michelle have done. Um, it's just a really interesting communications paradigm that um, some of the the more the foods that that we that people don't look at as being problematic have these very vast salmonella problems. You know, we've talked a lot about peanuts, peanut butter, uh, tahini, spices. These, these you know, the, the idea that salmonella. Um, if it's not heated along with water, when it gets when it gets stressed in that that high temperature situation, it, it kind of just shuts down, doesn't die, and, and can persist. And then in a high fat environment like a like a nut, um, co- you know, doesn't take as much for that mean infectious dose to uh, uh, to, to lead to illnesses. And, um, and and so so I'm I, I'm always I'm always kind of like looking out for nuts. Um, and, and so this one popped up last week and I I remember, you know, we we follow this stuff on barf blog and we pull a lot of things for, for our files that we don't post on. And so I, I, I just, for whatever reason, I remember seeing, um, five or six different hazelnut things that have happened in the last little while, like going back to, um, to December last year. And, um, 
and, and a lot of bulk hazelnuts uh, being recalled for salmonella reasons in, in Canada. And, and the thing that got me really riled up was the fact that no one had named any supplier. So the, 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 the CFIA way is to say, here is the affected product, and these are bulk. So it's, so it's not like there's a package that they can point to. And it's coming in in a bulk box, and it's ending up into a bulk uh, ingredient store, uh, which are much more common in, in Canada than they are um, in the U.S., where you would go in and, and you would uh, – I, I shared this in, in, I don't know, episode 30. Three maybe that I used to work in one of these stores when I was in high school, where all I would do is open up these thirty or sixty pound boxes of nuts and pour them into a bin, and then people would come in with and scoop them out and put them in a bag, and you weigh it up and go away. Um, so, so I know, like I, I, I kind of knew, I knew a little bit about the the process for this, and all of a sudden these um, those types of stores are, are being named as sources for these bulk hazelnuts, but there's no name of a supplier. So that why that matters so much, and it's not not a um, a, a name and shame type situation. And I think that um, that you know our our, our friend Bill Marler uh, also picks up on this this idea of okay, tell us who it is that's causing this. You know that, that he's kind of one of the first people that, that that's out there that says an outbreak happens. Tell me the source uh, of it. And he, his motivation, I, you know, is, is probably a little different from mine. His, his motivation I think is um, that I want people to know who it was. I want that name and shame. And it's, and, and, and I want people who are buying it to then call us up, especially if they got, they got sick. So I can add them to this, this case to, um, to this class action or, or whatever we may be made doing against it. My, my interest is, is a little more on the, food safety, culture, public health side of things. And it's, if I'm a competitor of one of these bulk stores, or I happen to have one of these ones, and I, I want to know whether I'm next on the list. If this recall expands, if I'm now looking for the supplier, but it, without the health authorities kind of telling me who the supplier is, I can't make a decision. All I know is hazelnuts are a problem and hazelnuts have been a problem for the last four months, but is it my supplier? And I'm not sure. I would rather get that information from 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 the inspection authority, from from the health folks, as opposed to calling up my individual supplier and being like, "Hey, are your hazelnuts the ones that are being recalled?" Because they don't. I mean, not not to be that that distributor may be sinister, but they don't really have to tell me anything because they can say, "Well, you know, certain lots or, or whatever." But if I want to know specifically who's got the the problem. And what they're doing to fix it, and if they're able to manage it, and this 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 recall just expands and expands, and there was another alert yesterday and another one this morning of more retailers being brought into this, but still no name name source from CFIA standpoint. That makes me angry. I mean, it just drives me crazy. Um, so, and it's been a problem. It just makes you know. It, it seems like that that individual agency needs to needs to be in in the business of protecting public health and helping businesses make good decisions not protecting a business that might be doing the importing because they can't impact business or their privacy rules that that they're mysteriously following and so that's what I've what I've written about now the the epilogue to this story which is hasn't made it into show notes cuz I just got an email as we were um at, right before we were starting the recording today was that um a really keen uh, a journalist in Oregon um, 
Lynn Terry, who happens to follow me on on Barf Blog because she's written a lot of food safety stuff uh, recently. She follows me on on Twitter. I mean, um, she wrote uh, an article yesterday. Um, sort of, I don't know if it's as a result of what I had uh, posted or or not, but she kind of deconstructed this whole thing and then found out from someone in the Hazelnut Growers Association of Oregon who it was. So, so no one in Canada has a name, but. Lynn Terry from the Oregonian has the name uh, of the distributor uh, uh, for it. So, um, so it's it's just incredible that um, that, that it's out there uh, and, and it's not coming through the, the right channels. And and why, why folks in Oregon are so interested in this, um, from what I gather from Lynn's article, is that um, uh, they are a uh, most of the the hazelnuts, almost all of the hazelnuts or filberts in the U.S. are produced in Oregon. Yes, and in fact, you know, again, just to, to to call back to the top of the show and to the previous episode, I noticed this when I was in Oregon because they had hazelnut everything. I had hazelnut candies in my room at the at the bed and breakfast, and yeah, it was uh, it was a huge uh, it was a huge thing. And I just started. Uh, I will link to uh, Lynn's uh, Twitter page, and I just started uh, following her on Twitter. And good for her. I mean, gosh, you know, uh, here's an, a, a clever, intelligent person who can do a little bit of digging, who knows how to do investigative journalism, and and wow, all of a sudden we get some some good information we didn't have before so so good for you lynn well and and yeah i mean i I think she's doing a really good service to the industry that that she's writing about here where instead of you know me being all grumpy and being like well which hazelnut is it and if they all come from the same place then who knows we can't differentiate this product she went and, and did a little digging and said okay well here's who it is so um that it, that that should quell some of the the questions that you know that I would have as a as a buyer I guess so it's like it, it's really you know uh, I don't know I just got all I just got all fired up I'm I'm losing track of my uh, my my faculties on this one but just. Well, it, so mad, Don. So mad. Well, so- and no, and, and and when I saw your bar blog post, I said we got to put this in show notes because I really, I really want to talk about this. And while we're while we're talking about. And again, we should say that you know many, many of our friends and colleagues in public health are good people and they're doing good work. However, there are some weenies out there, and certainly um, the the Canadians in your example would be an example. And another example is this thing that has Doug all fired up, which is uh, Dr. Eric Wilk of the Brazos County Health Department in Texas. Who and I don't. I, I, I just this just this just does not compute for me. Okay, so again, and we'll link to. There's a couple of. Uh, Barf blog stories about this, which we will link to. Um, so uh, we'll, I'll start with the, the the older one first. So um, so, and again, I'll read from the the Barf blog uh, the Barf blog post here. Dr. Eric Wilk with the Brazos County Health Department in Texas, next door to Texas A and M, where beef is best, <laughs> thought it would be appropriate to do his own. See, I'm eating this. It must be okay. Routine favored by politicians to endorse the safety of a food product stigmatized, usually rightly so, by an outbreak. The county's been investigating uh, an outbreak of E. coli 157H7 that sickened 10 people for two weeks, but adamantly, adamantly or adamantly, your choice, refused to release details about the restaurant and supplier link. Today, Dr. Wilkie began a press conference by taking a bite of a ground beef taco from the fingered restaurant. And now that now that you told me you guys like to work that word in, uh, every time I read it, I chuckle. Uh, from fingered restaurant Coco Loco prior to making that announcement. Quote, since everybody I'm sure would want to know the name of the restaurant, I went by there right before I came. I got a beef taco, so here it is. End quote. Wilkie paused to chew the taco before continuing with the announcement at the news conference. I mean, 
I understand why somebody would want to do that. I absolutely do not understand why a public health official would want to do that. I mean, if you're the CEO of the company and you want to prove that your product is safe and you want to do that and feed it to your kids and feed it to your family and and all that. But here is someone who is supposed to be protecting public health. I would expect that they would kind of be on the side of like wanting to let people know that what's I, I just it. I just don't I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. I mean, it's, I know Doug was was really fired up, and I was as I watched the video of this, it was it, it's just incredible because the guy, like it's it's not even like the smoothest taco bite, you know. He's this dude standing at a podium, and, he, and and it's very dramatic. I don't know if you watched the video, but he, he he unwraps this taco, sticks it in his mouth. Some of it falls on his chin, and he kind of chuckles, and he goes, yeah, it's from you know Coco Loco or whatever the place is. I'm going to go eat there tomorrow. So you're, you're all welcome to join me. And I was just th- – I just thought, wow. Like it, it, it kind of blew my mind. It was like everything it, – it, it, it went – even even from – even if you were the owner of that restaurant, it goes against all the, the crisis management, risk communication stuff that's out there. That That is not – obviously, people got sick. And so to be like, well, they're stupid for getting sick or you're stupid to, to, to worry about this um, is not really good risk communication on any side of, uh, side of things. But, yeah, especially coming from someone in public health and, and you just – I mean – I don't know if it's if it's gotten back to him or or not, but he did make a a follow up uh, apology saying that that it was insensitive, but um, but it was still it's just it's just wild. Well, it but, just it blew my mind. But but he also he also uh, and again Doug Doug linked to this uh, I guess the same day. Um, he also linked to the same guy saying that the outbreak was a fluke. Fluke, yeah. It's like, oh, it's a fluke. No problem. You know, some people are sick; they might die, but it was a fluke. What and, what what the hell kind of a response is that? And he, his, he, he mentioned something about how um, he didn't want people to be alarmed about food safety. So like, well, well, people got sick, so maybe, maybe the restaurant should have been a little more alarmed about food safety. Yeah, uh, before it happened. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe people ought to be a little bit more alarmed. Maybe people ought to like pay attention and and not go to a restaurant that doesn't have good food safety controls in place. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, Doug, Doug's response is, how do the cooks at Coco Loco verify the ground beef has reached 165? Some kind of temperature measuring device? Uh, you know, that's not a fluke, right? You, you, you have a way of measuring temperature. I mean, it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, They're all flukes, Don, all of these outbreaks. Well, well and, and, you know, and this is something that, that I've talked about before and I think I've talked about with you is yes, when we have a food poisoning outbreak, it is very likely a perfect storm, right? Uh, several things have to go wrong because for the most part, we have a relatively safe food supply and several things do have to go wrong. But that doesn't mean that you just throw, throw up your hands and say, well, you know, sometimes people get sick, you know, that's okay. Let's figure out what exactly went wrong in this particular case and then let's figure out what systems we can put in place to manage the problem. Like, for example, check, checking the temperature of your ground beef. Yeah. If, it was, if it was such a fluke, then what was it? <laughs> right, right. Like, like, you know, that, that's the thing. The, the other thing that, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to move on to another another outbreak here that happened in North Carolina, uh, another restaurant outbreak uh, in Fayetteville uh, linked to a couple of restaurants at a, at a hotel, a Holiday Inn hotel that's right on I-95. And 
Um, I mean, outbreak was, uh, um, you know, a bunch of people with salmonellosis, um, no real defined source yet, um, a week and a half into this. But the thing that, that, that pops up out of all of these is two, two comments that I, I mean, I wish I, I maybe I'll have a, a student do some content analysis on this this summer to find out uh, every time that there's an outbreak uh, at a restaurant, these two things happen. One is the the um, the health department says that the the restaurant is cooperating with investigators. Well, damn, I hope so. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it's that that to me doesn't like mean anything. And the second one is that they have required everyone in that restaurant to go through some sort of food food safety um, training. Except it doesn't. It, the, those two things on their on their own don't point to the it doesn't get to the source of the problem right like like this the the uh, coco locos one this one at holiday inn they, they haven't really they, they've found a food vehicle that's likely uh, associated with it but they haven't shown and oftentimes you're almost never able to show exactly what what happened but so it's really hard to train somebody on everything food safety that's that, you know from a uh, looking at this from a a theory of planned behavior standpoint, you want to be able to show somebody control that you have control over a situation. But if you can't show them what the cause was and you just say, well, all of these things matter, then you're not really able to demonstrate that they had any control over the problem. Like it's, it's too, it's almost like, yeah, okay, we're going to do these, you know, they're, they're, they're cooperating with us and we're going to put on this, um, you know, this food handler training, but we're going to train them in all the stuff that they should have known anyway. Um, and not focused on the one thing or the two things or the five things that led to this specific incident. Cause that's what we want them to learn from. It's not, you know, what it's not uh, check your suppliers temperatures. It's not wash your hands. If, if, if the, the incident was um, not using a thermometer and all that other noise confuses things when you're trying to teach somebody about a, um, a, 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 how to, how to learn from a specific incident. So it's, it's almost like we, these are, it's in the playbook, right. Of, of what's supposed to happen every time, but whether it's really effective and having that, you know, really tight ins- you know, inspector there every day to watch what's going on, uh, whether that matters three months afterwards, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's about whether the, the individual organization changes their, their philosophy or, 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 or says, man, you know what? This wasn't a fluke. We, we, we have to learn. We have to change something about what happened. Yeah. And I was, I, I, I don't remember what it was I was reading, but there was some sort of a recent outbreak where the response was, well, and to be very sure we're going to like double down on hand washing. And it's like, well, but okay, but it was a meat associated outbreak with a vegetative pathogen in what was likely undercooked meat. So it's great that you're going to wash your hands some more, but exactly to your point, what I really want you to do is check the temperature of the foods that you're cooking. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, hand washing is great. We've done a lot of research on hand washing. I know hand washing is beneficial, but hand washing doesn't fix everything, right? And in fact, there's some things that it's going to have no effect on whatsoever. And so to tell me that you're, you're, you're doubling down on hand washing or you're going to make sure that everybody's washing their hands doesn't, it Maybe it makes other people feel better. It sure doesn't make me. It makes me feel me. It makes me think that you're an idiot and you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you're not. I, I mean, in the purest sense, you're not identifying the hazard, right? Right. Right. Like you're just not. And and, and I kind of blame the like in, in in a lot of cases 
the health departments are, are also part of that that issue. It's that we've got to do something. You know, they're they're under um, sometimes immense political pressure to fix something that that goes beyond all the science stuff that that we talk about and end up throwing, you know. Uh, what's? Uh, let me see if I can confuse a cl- couple of cliches together. They throw a lot of darts at, at a board or something. You know, they're they're throwing stuff at the wall and seeing whether it sticks. They're throwing a lot of darts at the board to see what sticks. <laughs> what <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but but yeah, I mean, it's it, it it happens every time, or or really close to every time, and and it's not. Um, it, it doesn't instill any more confidence uh, in me. And so it's it's interesting that. I mean, just bringing it back to this Brazos um, County uh, issue with with Dr. Eric Wilkie, it's really interesting that whatever he saw from a hazard analysis uh, standpoint um, it, after the investigation was found, that he he has confidence that they're able to manage all the risks uh, or even the specific risk that's that's problem, problematic. And maybe he saw something, but but eating eating the taco isn't as as great uh, a, a thing as him maybe putting up a figure in his PowerPoint that says, here's what the problem was. Here's how they fixed it. Now it's up to you to figure out whether to trust them. I trust them, but you know, just, just eating the tacos. So like, you, you know, your dad saying, just trust me on this. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and of course, of course, once I heard that the restaurant was somewhere on I-95, it made me think of uh, Food Safety Talk number 11, entitled Somewhere on I-95. <laughs> oh, well, as soon as I heard of it, <laughs> it made me think about our good friend Gary Acuff, who I haven't felt about it, but I want to, I'm interested in his take on this, because Gary is, no, is a... Uh, um, and, and does not pull punches. No, no. He and he he was at the the meeting in Marseille. It was it was real good. To, really good to see him. I always I always enjoy what he has to say because yeah, he he pretty much uh, speaks what's on his mind. Yeah. Well, good. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um, uh, mechanically tenderized beef. Sure. Uh, you know, a little bit. You you had posted something in our notes uh a uh, uh an opinion piece that uh, jim marsden had, had written at meeting, meeting place. place yep uh and then there was uh some uh s- sort of some follow-up that i added on this this morning so um i'm not going to go through uh uh jim marsden's whole talk but Basically, he, he – uh, or not talk the, the article. He talks a little bit in this article about um, a, uh, a, a something that is in the June uh, issue of Consumer Reports, um, and it's about mechanically uh, tenderized beef, raising some questions about risk. And uh, he, he, the, the comment that you've got here um, is, you know, Consumer Reports is right to report the issue. Their article is factual and balanced. I agree that if mechanically tenderized meat products pose a greater food safety risk and require more thorough cooking, consumers should be informed about how these products uh, should be cooked. I still maintain that the best solution is to eliminate the issue through improved processing techniques, including effective intervention. So, you know, um, so I, the, the issue that, that's kind of being raised is, um, is as you and I, as the mere mortals of uh, in our kitchens, not to steal Doug's uh, comment or term too much from from Barflog, but if but if I want to eat a, a steak like I do, um, that uh, is uh, rare. I, I like I like my steak quite quite rare, blue rare, as my mother would would call it. Um, that uh, I. I if it's mechanically tenderized, there's a, a, an increased risk potential for um, having 
uh, pathogens like a 157 or salmonella pushed inside, and I may not be getting a, a, a really good um, uh, effective kill uh, of that. And we've talked a little bit about this in past past podcasts. And so if I go to the store, I don't. There's no label. I can't tell. I just have to go to a, a you know. And typically, what I do is I ask the butcher. Or I've had com- previous conversations on whether certain types of cuts that they get in are likely to be uh, uh, mechanically tenderized blade or needle tenderized or not. Um, and there's been there's been some outbreaks. I mean that's that's the thing. Uh, the 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 piece of follow up that that I have that um, you may or may not have seen last week is that um, as a result of an outbreak that it, uh, that happened last year last fall in Canada, um, that some of the illnesses were linked to um, uh, mechanically tenderized beef and some of them were linked to ground beef. Um, there has been an announcement uh, by the um, federal agriculture uh, minister, Jerry Ritz, saying that all federally registered meat plants that do um, any mechanical tenderizing uh, in their plants are now will be required to put a, a label on it that says that to inform consumers that 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 this product is different than a whole muscle uh, product. Um, and his comment was, certainly no one wants to see a repeat of the major recalls we've seen in this country. And then um, the nice uh, po- political statement of, can we guarantee there'll never be any more? No. Anybody who tells you you can is lying to you. Um, but so, so we've seen the, the Consumer Reports is about you know, the, this article that, that Marson wrote uh, is about this Consumer Reports article saying we need to put labels on it. And, and here we go in, in Canada, um, uh, uh, some plant or plants, federally registered plants will be required to put labels on it. We don't have quite the same thing here in the U.S. But a couple of things that, that follow up, there, there has been a little bit of work done on this. And John Lachansky, I think, you know, you know, John. Yeah, I know John and I, I know the work. Right. So, so they've done, he, he, he and, and Randy Phoebus and uh, uh, Reddy, Tip Reddy at, at Nebraska has done a little bit of work. And I, I just included an abstract here uh, from a few years ago from JFP where they actually, the, you know, this group um, did inoculate uh, uh, some, some beef and um, uh, mimic this mechanically tenderized uh, process and cooked the uh, the product on a on a flame gas grill like I like to cook my steak uh, to various internal temperatures 120 degrees Fahrenheit which is what I target with my steak 130 degrees and 140 degrees and what what they found was was kind of you know it, it, it was interesting because we've had outbreaks from this product um, from people having these cooking these products as I mentioned before but they found the same. 2.6 to 4.2 log reduction uh, uh, you know, of the path following cooking. So, so basically saying that with mechanically tenderized beef in this study, with the inoculation levels that they used, 120 degrees, 130 degrees, 140 degrees didn't matter um, from, a, uh, from a risk reduction standpoint. So it's, it's I mean – there's a lot of it, it, there's a lot of mess on it, but ultimately I'm on the the side of things of well maybe I can control the risk a little better if I am um, if I know um, that it was mechanically tenderized or not, and I don't want to get in because I know that that product has been linked to outbreaks. I don't want it. I mean, I really don't. I, if I'm going to eat it, I don't want it. I don't know what the parameters are of you know the uh, of how I cook it if that's any different from what uh what John and, and his his folks uh did with this study. So I want I I really do want the choice to not purchase it um for for that type of product. I would I would happily uh purchase 
uh, mechanically tenderized beef, if I was going to use it in a um, slow cooker recipe, if I was going to use it in, I was going to braise it, if I was going to use it uh, in, in a uh, in a stir fry where I was going to cut it very thin. But for, for if I'm going to eat a, a nice piece of thick steak, I, I would like to not purchase that product for that. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. And I, I don't like my steak quite as rare uh, as you do, but I do like a nice piece of steak and I, and I do not want it overcooked. I definitely do still want it uh, pink in the middle. Um, and actually, there's a, you know, in, in Googling around for this, there's a, a rather nice piece um, written by Helena Bottenmiller, who I think we've talked about before, that writes for Food Safety News. And the headline and we'll link to this in the show notes, is as Canada moves forward, rule to label mechanically tenderized meat in the U.S. still stuck at OMB. So so apparently um, this is something that perhaps USDA FSIS would like to do, um, but but again, we seem to have a situation where things are getting held up in in the White House uh, Office of Management and Budget, which I think is, is, kind of, uh, is kind of interesting. I'm still, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I'm still, I was still blown away by the discussion we had, uh, I think, at the CF Conference for Food Protection, the one before last, where it was suddenly dawning on everybody around the table that there was a lot of this mechanically tenderized beef out there, and nobody really had any idea how much. Nobody, not the agency, not the industry, you know, certainly not the restaurant industry that was buying it, maybe not the beef industry that was producing it. Um, and again, you know, good good friend of our show, whose initials are uh, WWW, who who works in a company like that. Uh, says that, yeah, they produce a lot of mechanically tenderized beef. So, you know, it seems to me the smart thing to do is label it. It would be great if the industry figured out on its own that they wanted to label it. Um, but that's probably not going to happen, and so maybe we'll get some rules that'll that'll mandate it and that'll kind of level the, the playing field. But again, you know, like to we spent the first part of the show busting on Canada for not being doing the right thing in terms of food safety in terms of releasing the the names of companies but maybe in terms of the issue of mechanically tenderized beef they're they're moving out ahead of the US yeah, and Doug, I mean, Doug brought up a couple of points that he wanted sort of answered about this in, in a barf blog post um, on you know moving in the right way but what about mechanically tenderized beef that's not um, tenderized at a federal plant or if it's tenderized at, at retail. And, and in fact, the outbreak that this was in response to this XL beefs, uh, XL beef, uh, situation, uh, was, uh, linked to, um, tenderized beef that was tenderized at a Costco central location commissary or something, you know, not, I don't know exactly what the, um, what the terminology would be, but it wasn't at a retail store at Costco, but it was at one of their sort of central areas. So it, so, the, the very thing that they were trying to address was not going to be co- co- collected underneath this rule. But it is a rule that goes in the right direction. I mean, that's um, it, to me that – and it's the rule where, where the federal government has jurisdiction. They can't really mandate what, what happens in those provinces in, in the same way um, because they're, they don't have jurisdiction and regulatory authority over them. Um, so, that's, so they did what they could. Which was, which was nice, but it doesn't maybe get the full answer. Right, right. And obviously it's a complicated issue um, because of the regulatory structure. You're right. I mean, I would like to know I would like to know if I'm buying something that is prepackaged, whether it was tenderized at the processing plant. I'm, I'm also 
I would also like to know if it was tenderized at the retail store, at the supermarket, or heck, in, in at the kitchen, in, in you know, in the back, in the, in the kitchen, at the at the fancy restaurant. I'd like to know that as well. What I'd really like to do is I'd really like to be able to bu- be able to buy beef that's already tender without <laughs> without blade tenderizing. You know, right. that's what I'd really like. But anyway, yes, that me me too. Flavorful and, and tender um, b- beforehand. I I agree. Uh, uh, with that, uh, what you know, let, let me before we move off of this, I have a question, sort of back for you. I think mm-hmm. you mentioned something there that the industry, do, you know, has has kind of balked at putting their own labels on this stuff. And, and it, you know, in the Canada situation, we've got the regulator coming in, and obviously here in the U.S., that's um, it, there's a foot a, a, a move foot uh, to do that. The my, my guess is that the industry doesn't want to put this on here because they think that. The two things. One, based on the the Lachansky stuff, that that really there isn't a, a risk difference um, for them if it's if it's prepared the same way that that it's it's essentially the same type of risk product. And two, that a mechanically tenderized beef product um, would not command the same amount of money as a non mechanically tenderized beef because it's not it's it's you know that would be some sort of tiered type type food. Um, what, I mean, what do you think about the the, the Lachansky stuff? Like, how do you how do you kind of reconcile the fact that there's been outbreaks with this with these products, and specifically in the outbreak uh, the outbreak situations that they have been prepared in a similar manner to a non mechanically um, tenderized product, and then you know, is, I, I guess the do you think that the industry is right to hide behind the fact that this there may not be uh, any risk differences? I don't think it's true that there's no risk differences or, or that the risk differences are small. Um, I think any time, well, I mean, so we have epidemiology that shows that these products are risky. Um, we, we have a process that, and again, some of Luchansky's work where you, you took um, the surface of a piece of meat, you put 0157H7 or some sort of marker bacteria on the surface. You plunge needles or blades into that, and you drove the organism um, in, in, into the into the, the cut. Um, you know that that's gonna that's gonna affect risk. So I'm I'm not convinced that the risks are equivalent. Uh, how how would you? I don't know. I mean, I guess if you if you maybe if you if you marinated something, if you you could design an experiment where you vacuum marinate something, in which where you didn't you didn't physically um, disrupt the meat tissue, but you used vacuum to draw the juices inside and the tenderizers inside. You could you could internalize some E. coli that way. So, but I'm I'm not I'm not convinced that the that the risk is the the same. Um, I I think, and again, it comes back to the the real problem is is that. You know, we, you know, not to, not to be that guy that's railing about the the food system. Um, I mean, we have a system that in this country that produces beef that needs to be perhaps mechanically tenderized, and maybe that's not a good thing. Um, I mean, I, I guess that's where I net out on that. Yeah, and I'm with you. I think that um, you know what, what's been. What's been published on you know the uh, John's work and there, I mean there's I just linked to one there's there's three papers that they've looked at uh, or that where they've done some studies on this stuff um, maybe maybe there are some assumptions in those in that work that that's not 
how you know, where, where the problems arise. You know, maybe it's it's a time post inoculation that matters. Uh, you know, there, there's a, a function of just how it works in a in a processing plant that that they're not able to to replicate here. But but I'm I'm with you on this that the fact that we don't have we don't have a paper that that shows it, but we've got epidemiology that shows there's something up with this with this product. That means that we've got a um, that that's enough for me that that it should uh, sort of um, prompt people to to label it. Um, so it's I, I just think that the stuff that, that that's published kind of confuses it a little bit because on both sides of the issue, in fact, we're. Um, as I was surfing a little bit for this, uh, a, a, a consortium of consumer advocacy groups had written a white paper or a letter, I guess, sort of supporting this this tenderizing, uh, uh, this labeling situation. And it, they cite this work as a you know, um, proof that there's risk. And then on the non-labeling side of things, they also cite this work as saying, look, it's the risk is the same. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it, this is a really nice messy example that that's great for, for you know for a classroom or teaching students about how how this all plays out because it, it it's it's not none of this is really clear cut you've got uh interpretation of the, of the data plus you got epidemiology that's kind of in conflict with what's out there um so it's it's really hard for me to see the benefits of not labeling it uh at this point other than the industry not wanting to lose money because it's a lesser cut but from a risk standpoint, I, I, I'm with you 100%. Yeah, well, and maybe, and you know, and again, before I said I was familiar with the work, but I, I see now that there may be more work out there than I think that I'm familiar with. And so maybe what we ought to do as a kind of a follow-up for the next episode is if you can send me some links to those articles and and to those statements and let me let me sit down and really seriously read the study and then let's, uh, let's take an episode and, you know, maybe part of an episode and, and really dig into like how you would, how I would read or how one would read read a study like this and how one has to be careful in terms of how you would interpret that. I, I first personally, I think I, that would be very interesting to me. And I don't know, maybe for our listeners, it would be, um, you know, the worst episode in the world, but <laughs> to listen to a couple of scientists pick apart a scientific paper, but, but I don't know, that might, that might be something that would be fun to do. Yeah, let's do it. And damn, we might be even be able to get John Lachansky on. I'm going to week. Okay. While he's online. <laughs> so, sounds good. Doesn't it? <laughs> um, well, good stuff. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for letting me rant on these things today. No, this was good. This was we covered a lot of ground here in in a relatively short amount of time today. Well, you've got a hard out, so we should probably wrap things up. We should. Uh, is there something you wanted to jump to before we we do it? Oh um, no, I think this is. I got lots of tabs open in my browser, so there's this is going to be a, a well well referenced and well linked episode. I'm good. Well, Don, as always, good to chat with you. I, I do look forward in, in a, um, a couple of months of actually seeing you face to face, which will be awkward as, as we've mentioned before. We'll not be able to talk uh, directly, at least not about food safety things, because it, we have to have microphones and earphones to do so. Right. Yeah, we're looking. Yeah, I'm look, definitely looking forward to the IAFP annual meeting there in uh, Charlotte. I got got to book my tickets soon. Um, oh, and I did. Uh, uh, speaking of, uh, well, this is, wouldn't really be follow up, but this would be f- looking forward. Um, I did. I did check with my colleagues in Brazil, and they do. They do have the internet there, um, and actually, it's it's pretty good. Well, that's that's cool. Um, as a as a uh, I guess opposite bizarro follow up, I also have a. Um, secured an in-
not when you're there, but I'm, I'm going to be heading down there in, in November. So I will get to check out that internet uh, in myself. Uh, you know, the, the Brazilians, I think they're up to something. I think they're building a food safety powerhouse down there. They've invited me. They've invited you. I mean, you know, other lesser experts than you and I. <laughs> Next. That's, that's the real question. Um, so cool. Um, this is, uh, oh, for, for our listeners as well, please uh, don't hesitate to uh, click on uh, uh, ratings in iTunes and give us some feedback. Um, we, we receive a couple of emails, uh, usually in between shows, from folks that listen with, with some questions, and we try to um, hit on those. Uh, we didn't sort of talk about that today, but... Uh, you know, if, if you've got stuff that you want to talk about with us or something to share with us that you'd like, like our, uh, our take on it, please don't hesitate to, uh, to email or tweet or, um, LinkedIn us or Pinterest me, whatever your social media fancy is. Yeah. And I'm, and I, I still have a whole bunch of uh, magnets left. So I have been getting regular requests for magnets. So please uh, do send me some, if you'd like some magnets, I'm going to bring a, uh, all of the rest of my magnets to IAFP and, and hopefully give them all away at that point. So, uh, if you don't, if you want your, if you want your magnets, uh, get them now. Well, wonderful. Don, as always, great time. Uh, have a, have a good Memorial day weekend. Thanks. You too, Ben cook safe. Ah, nicely done. Yeah, so I, 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 I'm not sure if I've convinced Kristen that we're gonna we're gonna grill out or not, but uh, that's that's my plan. We're we're gonna have like a real quiet uh, weekend. We're we're actually gonna have some some dinner tonight with uh, uh, Barb Kowalczyk and oh. her husband. Uh, that's uh, Barb Kowalczyk is my eleven o'clock teleconference. Sorry, I knew that you had something going on today. She yeah. Mentioned. Um. So she yeah we're gonna we're gonna have dinner with her her daughter. Um, is going to babysit our kids, and then we're going to go out for dinner. Oh, that's nice. She's a great lady. She is, and we, uh, yeah, we, we, we like we like hanging out with Barb. It's it's nice that she's landed at NC State too. That's a good. I think it's a good place for her. It's fun to run into her a lot. We, we spent some time together this week at that uh, uh, meeting I was telling you about. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
just makes me laugh. So you're going to be not taking your uh, <laughs> your big. Oh, I am, dude. I am. I'm there. I've, 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 I did a, I did a trial run, uh, bringing it to work today. I just got to figure out how to pack it. Um, I'm bringing, I'm bringing the whole thing. I'm bringing the arm. I'm bringing the shock mount. I'm bringing the uh, USB mic. I am, I'm, I'm going to be a professional podcaster in Brazil. You're bringing a desk. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not bringing the desk. I'm, I'm, I think they have desks there. No, they might be. The desk might be um, go counterclockwise as opposed to clock. <laughs> It is below the equator. I think that I think they do go counter. I'll have to put the USB plug in upside down. Well, you're going to have to do that, and and it'll be it's going to be winter, right? So winter. Do we have to do a holiday spectacular again? I think so. I think so. I think they have Christmas in in June in Brazil. Is that right? And also at um, furniture stores here, in in car dealerships. Christmas is July. You know, it's great. <laughs> Damn. Um, so, okay, perfect. Um, so where are you – are you staying sort of in one general location? Yeah, so they're, 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 they have arranged a, uh, a modest apartment in Sao Paulo for me. Um, and so I'm, Sao Paulo is going to be my uh, base of operations, but I'm also going to Campinas, which is apparently not far from Sao Paulo. That's where um, Anderson D'Souza, the student that worked in my lab, um, uh, is, is a university, is a faculty member now. And then I'm going to uh, Florinopolis, which is in the southern part of the country. I'm not sure whether we're driving or flying. I have no idea. I, I don't I have no idea idea how big brazil is or i have no really i i'm only just now sort of learning this stuff so i'm going to spend a couple of days in florinopolis and then i'm back in sao paulo and uh they're 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 sending me to rio for one weekend uh, apparently <laughs> so it's uh they're they're good folks the brazilians they really are is uh is Kristen gonna come or some of it no um she we talked about it um and it's a, it's a hassle because the visa process is is really problematic so no she is uh she has decided against it which and i'm i'm in i'm just in i'm in big trouble because i'm missing her birthday and her anniversary so yeah not good um <laughs> but in the in in more in more positive news uh, uh revealing personal details about my life we are uh, we are going to copenhagen in july so um sure. Where we're gonna where we're gonna meet some Brazilians, as a matter of fact, as well as some Danes. So, um, and that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be for. So we're gonna miss. I'm gonna miss her birthday and our anniversary, and then we're both gonna miss uh, uh, U.S. Independence Day, Fourth of July, because we're gonna be in Denmark. Well, you should um, you should bring some fireworks with you. Yeah, I'm thinking I'll pack those in the in my luggage next to my uh, my guns. Yeah, take take a carry on. <laughs> And uh, have a light with it, just just so you so they know what it's for. <laughs> right. So there's no ambiguity. Sounds good. Um, have a have a great uh, weekend, as I said. And yeah. Talk to you in a, in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be in Nebraska next week, uh, talking about. I'll see John Lachansky, so I'll mention that we talked about this on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And if he's got any other stuff he'd like to share, oh yeah, and please do send me those links uh, for the the articles or or other stuff, and then we'll we'll make that an agenda item to talk about next uh, next time. Sounds good. Have a have a good time. Say All hi. Right. To Bar- <laughs> Will do. Take right. care, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.